0: Welcome back to another episode of the Jane Eyre Public Access Read-Along with Womance. I'm your odd chapter reader, Morgan. I'm your even chapter reader, Isabeau. And in case you don't know, uh, when Isabeau and I aren't discussing a different romance novel in our Womance podcast, which is the feed that you're currently in, we are reading aloud to one another from Jane Eyre. And it's great. And it's great. You might be like, let me form my own opinion.
1: No, dear listener. No.
0: No. If you're joining us for the first time on Chapter 18, what a move.
1: (laughs) Seems like you've read this book before, dear listener.
0: Yeah, we're excited to have you here. So yeah, this week is Chapter 18, which means Isabel's gonna read to us aloud. But really quick, for her benefit mostly.
1: Thanks for outing me like that, partner. (laughs) I appreciate that. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs)
0: I'm going to recap solely from memory the events of Chapter 17. Rochester has returned to Thornfield after an absence and he has brought a house party with him, including the Nancy Kerrigan. Well, that's unfair to Nancy Kerrigan, but you know what I mean? Like she's built for this. She's meant to marry someone like Mr. Rochester, Blanche Ingram and her family. And it gets to be like the second day and Rochester decides it's okay to trot out his ward and that means her governess comes with her so jane witnesses a lot of flirtation between mr rochester and blanche she's already feeling pretty down about herself she gets upset enough about it that she decides she's gonna dip and rochester follows her and makes a veiled reference to having warm fuzzy feelings for her that he doesn't have for blanche ingram and the reader is allowed to elucidate i think that rochester was just trying to make her jealous Probably because she hurt his feelings by wanting to go to bed instead of holding his hand some more. After she saved his life. After she saved him from the fire. Yeah, so that is where you find us, you find Jane, you find Isabel. So as longtime listeners
1: will know, this is volume two, chapter three in my Oxford British edition because the Brits are terrible in all the unique and particular ways that they are.
0: We're also unique and terrible in all of our particular ways. We sure are. There is no like standard breakdown for book one, book two, book three for Jane Eyre that we've been able to find. My edition has absolutely no breaks. Other editions only have two. Some have 12. I don't know if that's true. I just made that up.
1: That sounds hyperbolic. So chapter three, volume two, or chapter 18. Merry days were these at Thornfield Hall, and busy days too. How different from the last three months of stillness, monotony, and solitude I had passed beneath its roof. All sad feelings seemed now driven from the house, all gloomy associations forgotten. There was life everywhere, movement all day long. You could not now traverse the gallery once so hushed, nor enter the front chambers once so tenantless without encountering a smart lady's maid or a dandy valet. The kitchen, the butler's pantry, the servants' hall, the entrance hall were equally alive, and the saloons were only left void and still when the blue sky and halcyon sunshine of the genial spring weather called their occupants out into the grounds. Even when the weather was broken, the continuous rain set in for some days. No damp seemed cast over enjoyment. Indoor amusements only became more lively and varied. In consequence of the stop put to outdoor gaiety. I wondered what they were going to do the first evening a change of entertainment was proposed. They spoke of playing charades. But in my ignorance, I did not understand the term.
0: They said that they would limbo. But in my ignorance, (laughs) I did not understand the term. (laughs) Once <laughs> they hauled out a bamboo cane and a steel drum.
1: I did not understand the tur. Oh, God, I love it. The servants were called in, the dining room tables wheeled away, the lights otherwise disposed, the chairs placed in a semicircle opposite the arch. While Mr. Rochester and the other gentlemen directed these alterations, the ladies were running up and downstairs, ringing for their maids. Mrs. Fairfax was summoned to give information, respecting the resources of the house in shawls, dresses, draperies of any kind, and certain wardrobes of the third story were ransacked and their contents in the shape of brocade and hooped petticoats, satin sacks, black Lace lappets, etc., were brought down in armfuls by the Abigails. Then a selection was made, and such things as were chosen were carried to the boudoir within the drawing room. Meantime, Mr. Rochester had again summoned the ladies round him. What a rooster! And was selecting certain of their number to be of his party. "'Miss Ingram is mine, of course,' said he. Afterwards, he named the two Mrs. Ashton and Mrs. Dent. He looked at me, I happened to be near him, as I had been fastening the clasp of Mrs. Dent's bracelet, which had got loose. "'Will you play?' he asked. I shook my head. He did not insist, which I rather feared he would have done. He allowed me to return quietly to my usual seat." He and his aides now withdrew behind the curtain. The other party, which was headed by Colonel Dent, sat down on the Crescent of Chairs. One of the gentlemen, Mr. Ashton, observing me, seemed to propose that I should be asked to join them. But Lady Ingram, instantly negative the notion. No, I heard her say, she looks too stupid for any game of the sort. Ere long, <laughs> no pause. It's a new chapter.
0: You can pause if you want. Make the tab sound.
1: The fact that
0: like we have
1: negavated and then she immediately jumps into air long, a bell tinkled and like doesn't give any commentary on like how she feels about Blanche being such a jerk.
0: Hopefully we'll get some insight into that if she's like, ah, whatever, Blanche, or if she's like, (laughs) you know.
1: It allows the reader to have all of the indignation on Jane's part. Air long, a bell tinkled, and the curtain drew up. Within the arch, the bulky figure of Sir George Lynn, whom Mr. Rochester had likewise chosen, was seen enveloped in a white sheet. Before him, on a table, lay open a large book, and at his side stood Amy Ashton, draped in Mr. Rochester's cloak and holding a book in her hand. Somebody, unseen, rung the bell merrily. Then Adele, who had insisted on being one of her guardian's party, bounded forward, scattering round her the contents of a basket of flowers she carried on her arm. Then appeared the magnificent figure of Miss Ingram, clad in white, a long veil on her head, and a wreath of roses round her brow. By her side walked Mr. Rochester, and together they drew near the table they knelt while mrs dent and louisa Ashton, dressed also in white took up their stations behind them a ceremony followed in dumb show in which it was easy to recognize the pantomime of a marriage at its termination colonel dent and his party consulted in whispers for two minutes then the colonel called out ride mr rochester bowed and the curtain fell.
0: uh duh this doesn't sound like fun at all this sounds so boring i know this sounds terrible <laughs>
1: considerable interval elapsed before it again rose. Its second rising displayed a more elaborately prepared scene than the last. The drawing room, as I have before observed, was raised two steps above the dining room, and on the top of the upper step, placed a yard or two back within the room, appeared a large marble basin, which I recognized as an ornament of the conservatory, where it usually stood surrounded by exotics and tenanted by goldfish, and whence it must have been transported with some trouble on account of its size and weight. Seated on the carpet by the side of this basin was seen Mr. Rochester, costumed in shawls with a turban on his head. His dark eyes and swarth skin and paynim features suited the costume exactly. He looked the very model of an Eastern emir, an agent, or victim of the bowstring. Presently advanced into view, Miss Ingram. She too was attired in Oriental fashion a crimson scarf tied sash like round the waist, an embroidered handkerchief knotted about her temples, her beautifully molded arms bare, one of them upraised in the act of supporting a pitcher poised gracefully on her head. Both her cast of form and feature, her complexion, and her general air suggest the idea of some Israeli Itish princess of the patriarchal days, and such was doubtless the character she intended to represent. She approached the basin and bent over it as if to fill her pitcher. She again lifted it to her head. The personage on the well brink now seemed to accost her to make some request. She hasted, let down her pitcher on her hand and gave him to drink. From the bosom of his robe, he then produced a casket, opened it, and showed magnificent bracelets and earrings. She acted astonishment and admiration, kneeling. He laid the treasure at her feet. Incredulity and delight were expressed by her looks and gestures. The stranger fastened the bracelets on her arms and the rings in her ears. It was Eliza and Rebecca, the camels only, were wanting. The divining party again laid their heads together. Apparently, they could not agree about the word or syllable this scene illustrated. Colonel Dent, their spokesman, demanded, the tableau of the whole, whereupon the curtain again descended. On its third rising, only a portion of the drawing room was disclosed, the rest being concealed by a screen, hung with some sort of dark and coarse drapery. The marble basin was removed, and its place stood a deal table and a kitchen chair. These objects were visible by a very dim light proceeding from a horn lantern, the wax candles being all extinguished. Amidst this sordid scene, sat a man with his clenched hands resting on his knees, his eyes bent on the ground. I knew Mr. Rochester, though the begrimed face, the disordered dress, his coat hanging loose from one arm, as if it had been almost torn from his back in a scuffle. The desperate, scowling countenance, the rough, bristling hair, might well have disguised him as he moved a chain clanked to his wrists were attached fetters. Bridewell exclaimed Colonel Dent and the charade was solved. A sufficient interval having elapsed for the performers to resume their ordinary costume, they re-entered the dining room. Mr. Rochester let in Missus Ingram. She was complimenting him on his acting. Do you know, said she, that of the three characters, I liked you in the last best. You had but lived a few years earlier. What a gallant gentleman highwayman you would have made. Is all the soot washed from my face? he asked, turning it towards her. Alas, yes, the more is the pity. Nothing could be more becoming to your complexion than that ruffian's rouge you would like a hero of the road then an english hero of the road would be the next best thing to an italian bandit and that could only be surpassed by a levantine pirate well whatever i am remember you are my wife we were married an hour since in the presence of all these witnesses she giggled and her color rose now Dent continued mr rochester it is your turn and as the other party withdrew in his band took the vacated seats miss ingram placed herself at the leader's right hand the other diviners Build the chairs on each side of him and her. I did not now watch the actors. I no longer waited with interest for their curtain to rise. My attention was absorbed by the spectators. My eyes, erewhile, fixed on the arch, were now irresistibly attracted to the semicircle of chairs. What charade Colonel Dent and his party played, what word they chose, how they acquitted themselves, I no longer remember, but I still see the consultation which followed each scene. I see Mr. Rochester turn to Miss Ingram and Miss Ingram turn to him, I see her incline her head towards him, till the jetty curls almost touch his shoulder and wave against his cheek. I hear their mutual whisperings, I recall their interchanged glances something even of the feeling roused by the spectacle returns in memory at this moment. I have told you, reader, that I had learnt to love Mr. Rochester. I could not unlove him now, merely because I found that he had ceased to notice me. Because I might pass hours in his presence and he would never once turn his eyes in my direction because I saw all his attentions appropriated by a great lady, who scorned to touch me with the hem of her robes as she passed, who, if her dark and imperious eye fell on me by chance, would withdraw it instantly, as from an object too mean to merit observation. I could not unlove him, because I felt sure he would soon marry this very lady, because I read daily in her a proud security in his intentions respecting her, because I witnessed hourly in him a style of courtship which, if careless and choosing rather to be sought than to seek, was yet, in its very carelessness, captivating, and in its very pride, irresistible. There is nothing to cool or banish love in these circumstances, though much to create despair. Much, too, you will think, reader, to engender jealousy, if a woman in my position could presume to be jealous of a woman in Miss Ingram's. But I was not jealous, or very rarely. The nature of the pain I suffered could not be explained by that word. Miss Ingram was a mark beneath jealousy. She was too inferior to excite the feeling, pardon the seeming par- Paradox, I mean what I say. She was very showy, but she was not genuine. <laughs> she had a fine person, many brilliant attainments, but her mind was poor. Her heart barren by nature. Nothing bloomed spontaneously on that soil. No unforced natural fruit delighted by its freshness. She was not good. She was not original. She used to repeat sounding phrases from books. She never offered nor had an opinion of her own.
0: It's like those women who quote Anchorman and think that it makes them funny,
1: (laughs) right? She advocated a high tone of sentiment, but she did not know the sensations of sympathy and pity. Tenderness and truth were not in her. Too often she betrayed this, by the undue vent she gave to spiteful antipathy she had conceived against little Adele, pushing her away with some contumelious epithet if she happened to approach her, sometimes ordering her from the room and always treating her with a coldness and acrimony. Other eyes besides mine watched these manifestations of character. Watched them closely, keenly, shrewdly. Yes, the future bridegroom, Mr. Rochester himself, exercised over his intended a ceaseless surveillance. It was from this sagacity.
0: I thought it was sagacity.
1: Could be. Sagacity. This guardedness of his, this perfect, clear consciousness of his fair one's defects, this obvious absence of passion in his sentiments towards her, that my ever-torturing pain arose. It's the hope that kills. It's
0: the hope. It's the hope that kills you. I don't know why I gendered the thing, probably because it's talking about Blanche Ingram, but I also find it irritating when men just quote movies and think that it makes them funny. I am recalling, though, a specific memoir I read of one of the first villains in Bachelor history who coined the term, I'm not here to make friends. And she did consider herself quite the comédienne because of her ability to quote movies. It is weird that that is
1: something that people think passes for a kind of originality, when it's like the fact that you have a really good memory for remembering lines from movies. Like that's something that my family, like we communicate in famous movie quotes to each other. It's like an in joke with us, but like that never passes for what we would consider like original thought. It's like part of the joke.
0: or Having a sense of humor, even.
1: (laughs) And you have a memory for, like, that kind of ephemera?
0: I guess it demonstrates that you can identify when things are funny. Yeah. See, this is the problem. It's like liking animals and being funny have become less aspirational traits and more like expected traits and so people who don't necessarily have them are like trying to pantomime having them you know? And it's not actually like a value statement if you don't particularly like animals or you're not particularly funny. If you can make a profession out of it, it's a rare talent.
1: Yeah, but also like not everyone's gonna be the funniest person in the room.
0: And not everyone needs to be. You think about like oldie Times as very stuffy. Right.
1: But also, like, oldie times, they have, like, literally nothing to do. They put on these, like, weird ass pantomimes to entertain each other when it's raining.
0: Think how long this game of charades is. It was one word, and they put together costumes and set design, and then they have to do the second syllable in a second pantomime. Like, it would take forever with costume and, once again, set design. And curtain rising and falling. It does remind me of when I was unemployed and suddenly things that used to take me five minutes. Like I would have to be like, all right, I'm going to make coffee and then I'll drink it in 20 minutes.
1: You have days to fill.
0: It's like it's not like I got new stuff or like had new. It's just like moving slowly.
1: Reading Jane Eyre in Quarantine is also, I think, probably more revealing. Like, I feel like I'm over-identifying with this text in a way that I didn't even when I was a teenager. And I think part of it is because, like, the closeness of Thornfield and, like, the lack of things to do. And she's, like, always super jazzed. Like, that whole thing about, like, how Thornfield is now alive. Like, just the idea of seeing a person is, like,
0: (gasps) Yeah, but also, like, I've always held this thought of, like, home as, like, a place of stability where things don't really happen like things happen but they don't really happen without like some kind of shake up, you know, but going through quarantine and then also it's reflected in this text of Jane Eyre of like this idea of like a home can be a liminal space. I mean, in this moment, I feel literally suspended in amber, even though so much has changed in my life over the last almost year, 11 months, but it still feels like stasis, which I feel like is the very definition of a liminal space. I'm Schrodinger's cat at all times. I am what I became and what I was all at once. And I think something similar is happening at this house party in Jane Eyre. Yes.
1: And also having your workplace also be your home is also part of this creation of a stasis that moves, but like you continue to move in the stasis. And so like, that's weird. Cause like when you said I feel suspended in Amber, I'm like, oh yes, exactly. But it's like somebody is keeps moving my Amber, except I'm never broken out of it. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs>
0: Do you know what I just realized? I was 28 when I went into quarantine. I'm about to turn 30. That's wild. I guess it makes sense that you would feel like that stuff hadn't changed, you know? It is really weird to think about 2020 as almost an entirely lost year, Mm -hmm. like
1: that it just like didn't happen.
0: But it did!
1: Right, it did.
0: A lot of stuff happened.
1: A massive amount of stuff happened. Yeah. Yeah murder hornets
0: we forget about those which is wild
1: i know i'm like that was a big thing i remember that very clearly
0: remember we were all freaked out about the rainforest burning for the first time before this happened like we all suddenly realized there were fires in the rainforest
1: or that a billion animals in australia died last year
0: that's wild i didn't know that
1: yeah the year started with the australian fires
0: oh that's right i forgot about those
1: all those like super well-meaning australians and they're like don't water the koala bears because you're gonna overwater them and then they're gonna die and they were like all oh, their little paws were burned i saw he was going to marry her for family perhaps political reasons because her rank and connection suited him I felt he had not given her his love, and that her qualifications were ill-adapted to win from him that treasure. This was the point. This was where the nerve was touched and teased. This was where the fever was sustained and fed. She could not charm him. If she had managed the victory at once, when he had yielded and sincerely laid his heart at her feet, I should have covered my face, turned to the wall, and figuratively have died to them. If Miss Ingram had been a good and noble woman endowed with force, fervor, kindness, sense, I should have one vital struggle with two tigers, jealousy and despair, then my heart torn out and devoured. I should have admired her, acknowledged her excellence, and been quiet for the rest of my days, and the more absolute her superiority, the deeper would have been my admiration, the more truly tranquil my quiescence. But, as matters really stood, to watch Miss Ingram's efforts at fascinating Mr. Rochester to witness their repeated failure, herself unconscious that they did fail, vainly fancying that each shaft launched hit the mark, and infatuatedly pluming herself on success, when her pride and self-complacency repelled further and further what she wished to allure, to witness this, was to be at once under ceaseless excitation and ruthless restraint. Because, When she failed, I saw how she might have succeeded. Arrows that continually glanced from Mr. Rochester's breast and fell harmlessly at his feet might, I knew, if shot by a surer hand, have quivered keen in his proud heart, have called love into his stern eye and softness into his sardonic face, or better still, without weapons, a silent conquest might have been one. Why can she not influence him more, when she is privileged to draw so near him, I asked myself. Surely she cannot truly like him, not like him with true affection. If she did, she need not coin her smile so lavishly. Flash her glances so unremittingly, manufacture airs so elaborate, grace is so multitudinous. It seems to me that she might be merely sitting quietly at his side, saying little and looking less. Get nearer his heart. I have seen in his face a far different expression from that which hardens it now while she is so vivaciously accosting him. But then it came out of itself. It was not elicited by meretricious arts and calculated maneuvers and one had but to accept it to answer what he asked without pretension, to address him when needful without grimace. It increased and grew kinder and more genial, and warmed like a fostering sunbeam. How will she manage to please him when they are married? I do not think she will manage it, and yet might be managed, and his wife might, I verily believe be the very happiest woman the sun shines on. I have not yet said anything condemnatory of mr rochester's project of marrying for interest and connections it surprised me when i first discovered that such was his intention i had thought him a man unlikely to be influenced by motives so commonplace in his choice of a wife but the longer i considered the position education etc of the parties the less i felt justified in judging and blaming either him or miss ingram for acting in conformity to ideas and principles instilled into them doubtless from their childhood all their class held these principles i supposed then they had reasons for holding them such as I could not fathom. It seemed to me that were I a gentleman like him I would take to my bosom only such a wife as I could love. But the very obviousness of the advantages to the husband's own happiness offered by this plan convinced me that there must be arguments against its general adoption of which I was quite ignorant, otherwise I felt sure the world would act as I wished to act. But in other points as well as this I was growing very lenient to my master. I was forgetting all his faults, for which I had once kept a sharp lookout. It had formerly been my endeavor to study all sides of his character, to take the bad with the good, and from the just weighing of both to form an equitable judgment. Now I saw no bad. The sarcasm that had repelled me, the harshness that had startled me once, were now like keen condiments in a choice dish presence was pungent but their absence would be felt as comparatively insipid when i asked for the vague something was it a sinister sorrowful a designing or desponding expression that opened upon a careful observer now and then in his eye and closed again before one could fathom the strange depth partially disclosed that something which used to make me fear and shrink as i had been wandering amongst the volcanic looking hills had suddenly felt the ground quiver and seen it gape that something i in intervals be held still and with throbbing heart, but not with palsied nerves. Instead of wishing to shun, I longed only to dare, to divine it, and I thought Miss Ingram happy because one day she might look into the abyss at her leisure, explore its secrets, and analyze their nature. Meantime, I thought only of my master and his future bride saw only them, heard only their discourse, and considered only their movements of importance. The rest of the party were occupied with their own separate interests and pleasures. The ladies Lynn and Ingram continued to consort in solemn conferences, where they nodded their two turbans at each other and held up their four hands in confronting gestures of surprise or mystery or horror, according to the theme on which their gossip ran, like a pair of magnified puppets.
0: Or muppets. <laughs> yeah, muppets
1: mild mrs dent talked with good-natured mrs Ashton, and the two sometimes bestowed a courteous word or smile on me sir george lynn colonel dent and mr Ashton discussed politics or county affairs or justice business i wonder what justice business is
0: <laughs> business. i'm in the business of justice let's take it from the top he's got a body like a scale it's tipping to the top i don't know it's so good justice business
1: Lord Ingram flirted with Amy Eshton, Louisa played and sang too, and with one of the messers, Lynn and Mary Ingram listened languidly to the gallant speeches of the other. Sometimes all, as with one consent, suspended their byplay to observe and listen to the principal actors. For after all, Mr. Rochester, and because closely connected with him, Miss Ingram, were the life and soul of the party. If he was absent from the room an hour, a perceptible dullness seemed to steal over the spirits of his guests. His re-entrance was sure to give a fresh Impulse to the vivacity of conversation. The want of his animating influence appeared to be peculiarly felt one day that he had been summoned to Millcut on business and was not likely to return until late. The afternoon was wet. A walk the party had proposed to take to see a gypsy camp lately pitched on a common beyond Hay was consequently deferred. Some of the gentlemen were gone to the stables, the younger ones together with the younger ladies, and playing billiards in the billiard room. The Dowagers Ingram and Lynn sought solace in a quiet game of cards. Blanche Ingram, after having repelled by Sir Percilious -er Tasserturnity, some efforts of Mrs. Dent and Miss Eshton to draw into conversation had first murmured over some sentimental tunes and airs on the piano, and then, having fetched a novel from the library, had flung herself in haughty listlessness on a sofa, and prepared to beguile by the spell of fiction the tedious hours of absence. The room and the house were silent, only now and then the merriment of the billiard players was heard from above. It was verging on dusk, and the clock had already given warning of the hour to dress for dinner, when little Adele, who knelt by me in the drawing-room window seat, exclaimed, Voila, Monsieur Rochester qui revient. He's returned. Merci. I turned, and Miss Ingram darted forwards from the sofa. The others, too, looked up from their several occupations, for at the same time, a crunching of wheels and splashing tramp of horses became audible on the wet gravel. A post-chase was approaching. What can possess him to come home in that style, said Miss Ingram. He rode Mesrur, the black horse, did he not, when he went out, and Pilot was with him. What has he done with the animals? As she said this, she approached her tall person, in ample garments so near the window, that I was obliged to bend. Back almost to the breaking of my spine. In her eagerness, she did not observe me at first, but when she did, she curled her lip and moved to another casement. Post chase stopped, the driver rang the doorbell, and a gentleman alighted, attired in traveling garb. But it was not Mr. Rochester. It was a tall, fashionable-looking man. A stranger. Provoking! Mm-hmm. <laughs> exclaimed Miss Ingram. You tiresome monkey, apostrophizing Adele, who perched you up in the window to give you false intelligence she cast on me an angry glance as if I were in fault. Some parlaying was audible in the hall, and soon the newcomer entered. He bowed to Lady Ingram, as deemed her the eldest lady present. It appears I come at an inopportune time, madam, said he, when my friend Mr. Rochester is from home, but I arrive from a very long journey, and I think I may presume so far an old and intimate acquaintance as to install myself here till he returns. His manner was polite, his accent in speaking struck me as being somewhat unusual, not precisely foreign but still not altogether English. His age might be about Mr. Rochester's between 30 and 40, his complexion was singularly sallow. Otherwise he was a fine-looking man, at first sight, especially. On closer examination, you detected something in his face that displeased rather that failed to please. His features were regular, but too relaxed. His eye was large and well cut, but the life looking out of it was a tame, vacant life. At least so I thought. What a cool distinction between like displeasing versus failing to please. I love that distinction.
0: I know this is like a really brief, spoiler but i wonder if this isn't like a little bit of commentary on colonizers and i think about hannah Arendt's the origins of totalitarianism when she discusses the people who went out to colonize for britain and like the quality of person that they were although that's pretty problematic in a lot of ways now but the fact that she wrote about it indicates to me that charlotte bronte may have been made prone to certain assumptions
1: The sound of the dressing bell dispersed the party. It was not till after dinner that I saw him again. He then seemed quite at his ease, but I liked his physignomony. Oh, she just loves
0: this word. It's so hard.
1: She really does. It's terrible. Physignomony? Nami. Moving on. Even less than before, it struck me as being at the same time unsettled and inanimate. His eye wandered and had no meaning in its wandering. This gave him an odd look, such as I never remembered to have seen. For a handsome and not an unamiable looking man, he repelled me exceedingly. There was no power in that smooth-skinned face of a full oval shape, no firmness in that aquiline nose and small cherry mouth. There was no thought on the low, even forehead, no command in that blank brown eye. As I sat in my usual nook, And looked at him with the light of the Gerindoles? Girondoles.
0: God, this chapter! It means candle holders on the wall great candle holders on the wall on the mantelpiece
1: beaming full over him for he occupied an armchair drawn close to the fire and kept shrinking still nearer as if he were cold i compared him with mr rochester i think with deference be it spoken the contrast could not be much greater between a sleek gander and a fierce falcon between a meek sheep and a rough-coated keen dog it's guardian he had spoken of Mister. Rochester as an old friend. A curious friendship theirs must have been. A pointed illustration, indeed, of the old adage that extremes
0: meet. Uh, Mister. Rochester, uh, of course, being in sea Scat Cat in this <laughs> analogy. <laughs>
1: Two or three of the gentlemen sat near him, and I caught at times scraps of their conversation across the room. At first, I could not make much sense of what I heard, for the discourse of Louisa Ashton and Mary Ingram, who sat near me, confused the fragmentary sentences that reached me at intervals. These last were discussing the stranger. They both called him a beautiful man. Louisa said he was a love of a creature, and she adored him. And Mary instanced his pretty little mouth and nice nose. Was her ideal of the charming what a sweet tempered forehead he has cried louisa so smooth none of those frowning irregularities i dislike so much and such a placid eye and smile and then to my great relief mr henry lynn summoned them to the other side of the room to settle some point about the deferred excursion to hay common i was now able to concentrate my attention on the group by the fire and i presently gathered that the newcomer was called mr mason then i learned that he was but just arrived in England, and that he came from some hot country, which was the reason, doubtless, his face was so sallow, and that he sat so near the hearth and wore a surtout in the house. Presently, the words Jamaica, Kingston, Spanish Town indicated the West Indies as his residence, and it was with no little surprise I gathered ere long that he had there first seen and become acquainted with Mr. Rochester. He spoke of his friend's dislike of the burning heats, the hurricanes, and rainy seasons of that region. I knew Mr. Rochester had been traveler, Mrs. Fairfax had said so, but I thought the continent of Europe had bounded his wanderings, till now I had never heard a hint given of visits to more distant shores. I was pondering these things when an incident, and a somewhat unexpected one, broke the thread of my musings. Mr. Mason, shivering as someone chanced to open the door, asked for more coal to be put on the fire, which had burnt out its flame, though its mass of cinder still shone hot and red. The footman, who brought the coal in going out, stopped near Mr. Ashton's chair and said something to him in a low voice of which I heard only the words, Old Woman, quite troublesome. "'Tell her she shall be put in the stocks "'if she does not take herself off,' replied the magistrate. "'No, stop,' interrupted Colonel Dent. "'Don't send her away, Ashton. "'We might turn the thing to account. "'Better consult the ladies.' Speaking aloud, he continued, Ladies, you talked of going to Hay Common to visit the camp. Sam here says that one of the old mother bunches is in the servants' hall at this moment and insists upon being brought in before the quality to tell them of their fortunes. Would you like to see her? Surely, Colonel, cried Lady Ingram. You would not encourage such a low impostor. Dismiss her, by all means, at once! But I cannot persuade her to go away, my lady, said the footman, nor can any of the servants. Mrs. Fairfax is with her just now, entreating her to be gone, but she has taken a chair in the chimney corner and says n- nothing shall stir her from it till she gets leave to come in here. What does she want? asked Mrs. Eshton. To tell the gentry their fortunes, she says, ma'am, and she swears she must and will do it. What is she like? inquired the Mrs. Eshton in a breath a shockingly ugly old creature, miss, almost as black as the croc. Why, she's a real sorceress, cried Frederick Lynn. Let us have her in, of course. To be sure, rejoined his brother, it would be a thousand pities to throw away such a chance of fun. My dear boys, what are you thinking about? exclaimed Lady Lynn. I cannot possibly countenance any such inconsistent proceedings chimed the dowager ingram indeed mama but you can and will pronounced the haughty voice of blanche and she turned round on the piano stool there till now she had sat silent apparently examining sundry sheets of music i have a curiosity to hear my fortune told therefore sam order the bell damn forwards my darling blanche recollect i do i recollect all you can suggest and i must have my will quick sam yes 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 cried all the juveniles both ladies and gentlemen let her come it will be excellent sport!" The footman still lingered. She looks such a rough one, said he. Go! Ejaculated Miss Ingram, and the man went excitement instantly sees the whole party a running fire of rallyery, and Jess was proceeding when sam returned she won't come now said he she says it's not her mission to appear before the vulgar them's her words I must show her into the room by herself and then those who wish to consult her must go to her one by one you see now my queenly blanche began lady ingram she encroaches be advised my angel girl and show her into the library of course cut in the angel girl in quotations it is not my mission to listen to her before the vulgar heard either i mean to have her all to myself is there a fire in the library
0: oh my god (laughs) blanche Blanche.
1: (laughs) yes ma'am but she looks such a tinkler cease that chatter blockhead and do my bidding again sam vanished and mystery animation expectation rose to full flow once more she's ready now said the footman as he reappeared she wishes to know who will be her first visitor I think I had better look in upon her before any of the ladies go, said Colonel Dent. Tell her Sam a gentleman is coming. Sam went and returned. She says, sir, that she'll have no gentleman. They need not trouble themselves to come near her. Nor, he added, with difficulty suppressing a titter, any ladies either, except the young and single. By Jove, she has taste, exclaimed Henry Lynn. Miss Ingram rose solemnly. I go first, she said in a tone which might have befitted the leader of a forlorn hope, mounting a breach in the van of his men. Oh, my best, my dearest, pause, reflect, was her mother's cry, but she swept past her in stately silence, passed through the door which Colonel Dent held open, and we heard her enter the library. Comparative silence ensued. Lady Ingram thought it lay cast to wring her hands, which she did accordingly. Miss Mary declared she felt for her part she never dared venture. Amy and Louise Ashton tittered under their breath and looked a little frightened. The minutes passed very slowly. Fifteen were counted before the library door opened again. Miss Ingram returned to us through the arch. Would she laugh? Would she take it as a joke? All eyes met her with a glance of eager curiosity, and she met all eyes with one of rebuff and coldness. She looked neither flurried nor merry. She walked stiffly to her seat and took it in silence. Well, Blanche, said Lord Ingram. What did she say, sister, asked Mary. What did you think? How did you feel? Is she a real fortune teller, demanded the Mrs. Ashton. Now, now, good people, returned Miss Ingram, don't press upon me. Really, your organs of wonder and credulity are easily excited. You seem by the importance of all, my good mamma included, ascribed to this matter absolutely to believe we have a genuine witch in the house who is in close alliance with the old gentleman. I have seen a gypsy vagabond. She has practiced in hackneyed fashion, the science of palmistry, and told me that such people usually tell. My whim is gratified, and now I think Mr. Ashton will do well to put the hag in the stocks tomorrow morning as he threatened. Miss Ingram took a book, and back in her chair and so declined further conversation. I watched her for nearly half an hour during all the time she never turned a page and her face grew momentarily darker, more dissatisfied, and more surly expressive disappointment. She had obviously not heard anything to her advantage, and it seemed to me from her prolonged fit of gloom and taciturnity that she herself, notwithstanding her professed indifference, attached undue importance to whatever revelations had been made her. Meantime, Mary Ingram, Amy, and Louise Ashton declared they dared not go Alone, yet they all wished to go. A negotiation was opened through the medium of the ambassador Sam, and after much pacing to and fro, till I think the said Sam's calves must have ached with the exercise, permission was at last, with great difficulty, extorted from the rigorous Sybil for the three to wait upon her in the body. Their visit was not so still as miss ingram's had been we heard hysterical giggling little shrieks proceeding from the library at the end of about 20 minutes they burst the door open and came running across the hall as if they were half scared out of their wits i'm sure she has something now right they cried one and all she told us such things she knows all about us and they sank breathless into various seats the gentleman hastened to bring them pressed for further explanation they declared she had told them of things they had said and done when they were mere children described books and ornaments they had in their booty. Wars at home, keepsakes that different relations had presented to them. They affirmed that she had even divined their thoughts and had whispered in the ear of each the name of the person she liked best in the world and informed them of what they most wished for. Here the gentlemen intersposed with earnest petitions to be further enlightened on the, these last two named points, but they got only blushes, ejaculations, tremors, and titters in return for their importunity. The matrons, meantime, offered the Viengrettes?
0: Vinaigrette. Vinaigrette? Italian vinaigrette. French vinaigrette. I don't know what that is. That must be like, OK, the matrons
1: meantime offered vinaigrettes and wielded fans. Maybe like an aperitif?
0: It's not in my notations. I hate It's not mine either. Cool. <laughs> Just comes up with vinaigrette. It is the word vinaigrette. Weird. What did... Oh, now I have to look up etymology. Because it's spelled
1: V-I-N-A-I-G-R-E-T-T-E-S. It has an extra I in mine.
0: It's the French diminutive of vinegar. Weird. Oh, a small ornamental bottle for holding smelling salts.
1: Ah, that makes more sense. We got it. Thank you and again and again reiterated the expression of their concern, that their warning had not been taken in time, and the elder gentleman laughed, and the younger urged their services on the agitated fair ones. In the midst of the tumult, and while my eyes and ears were fully engaged in the scene before me, I heard a hem close at my elbow. I turned and saw Sam. If you please, miss. Gypsy declares that there is another young single lady in the room who has not yet been to her yet, and she swears she will not go till she has seen all. I thought it must be you. There is no one else for it. What shall I tell her? Oh. "'I will go by all means,' I answered, "'and I was glad of the unexpected opportunity "'to gratify my much-excited curiosity. "'I slipped out of the room, unobserved by any eye, "'for the company were gathered in one mass "'about the trembling trio just returned, "'and I closed the door quietly behind me. "'If you like, miss,' said Sam, "'I'll wait in the hall for you, "'and if she frightens you, just call me and I'll come in. "'No, Sam, return to the kitchen.' "'I am not in the least afraid, nor was I, "'but I was a good deal interested and excited.'
0: Do you think Sam likes Jane?
1: (laughs) I think he's really good at his job, is what Sam is intimating to me. He's like a true gentleman. He's Yeah, he's a really excellent footman, and he cares deeply. I wonder if Sam's in on the joke. Doesn't seem immediately that he is, but he also
0: might be. All right, any thoughts?
1: My thought is when she says, no, Sam, return to the kitchen, I'm not in the least afraid. It reminds me of Luke Skywalker in The Empire Strikes Back when he tells Yoda, I'm not afraid. And Yoda says, you will be. (laughs) It's like, that's what that reminded me of. You will be. You will be. Okay.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I, I think we see a scene of a chic, right? Reference. So, you know, we talk about it in our Aha Shake Heartbreak series that uh, this was a, a long standing fetishization in the West. But just like the carnivalesque of it in this like house on a dreary day, it's so racialized and also a little bit, you know, some gender play, perhaps. I think, once again, speaks to, like, the strangeness and the liminality of where we are.
1: It's also insane how well-read everyone has to be to even get the references that they're making. So, like, there's, like, the biblical text, there's Paradise Lost, and, like, just all the stuff that, like, Rochester and Jane are especially pulling on, and how disappointed she is when other people don't get their references—
0: I think, like, the thing about being well-read in this era is, though, like, there were 12 books and no television.
1: Well, there's no television, but there were way more than 12 books, and this is also an era where a lot of...
0: Well, but there there were significantly less books than there are now, which I think uh, I was listening to another podcast, and they were talking about, like, the loss of a shared text with the advent of streaming. Like, we're not all sitting around our TVs at the same time every night watching the exact same shows. And, like, whatever you think, is a big deal show is actually just like you have curated the people around you and you will have similarly curated television playlists. And I think the idea of a shared text was a lot more like if you're going to have any kind of text, it's probably a shared text. There were more books, but there weren't as many as there are now, right? Like, not as many diverging tastes. It was really hard to get a book published. It was very expensive to possess them. There's certainly a class
1: element to this. There's also a massively gendered part of this. And you're right to say, like, any person of education in this time would have, like, read Virgil and Homer. But, like, one of the things that's unique about this moment is that it is a very literary time for the middle and upper classes of England. Because a lot of translations were happening, and it was very in vogue like, in the same way that it was in vogue and exoticized to talk about the Near East and the Far East and the way that they were doing, those texts were also being translated into English for the first time to great excitement. And so, like, Jane is incredibly well-read. She's, like, certainly better read than Miss Ingram. And I I guess you're right. It isn't surprising that Mr. Rochester is well-read. But, like, I don't know. It's weird. Their shared texts, like, she has more of them than he does with the other people in the party.
0: Or maybe just, like, a a more intense interest in them to call on them because she doesn't have other things like parties and music to occupy her with but you know she was a teacher at a a school so those references would you know i'm not necessarily sure that jane is better read than blanche ingram but i'm definitely assured that like they mean more to her than they do to miss ingram all right anything else well, next week we'll get into chapter 19 and hopefully figure out what's going to happen and just, like, summarize the rest of the book with this fortune telling. Yeah, hopefully it'll just be like, well, thumbs the brakes. Yes, absolutely. So with that, I would I would just encourage you to uh, loosen your jeans. But never your heirs. Mm-hmm. Mwah.